Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 216, The Great Heathen Army. Always be prepared. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and it costs about the price of a pint per month. And thank you very much to Kyle, Tim, and Lauren for signing up already. I have something you might be interested in. As you know, Z just submitted her PhD, and what I've done is summarize the over 250-page monster and put that summary up on the BHP site. Basically, her PhD can be summed up in why the American news organizations are making us stupid. Measurably, frighteningly stupid. You totally should read it, but be warned, you probably won't look at the news the same way again. This is something you can't unsee. So if you're still interested, just head over to my site and click about the show and then scroll down to the section about co-producer Z and then click the bit that mentions their PhD. There are also direct links on our Twitter and Facebook communities that I put up today. And there's also a direct link in the show notes for this episode. If you can't tell, I'm really proud of what she accomplished here. I think it's really good work. All right, let's get back to history. And we're coming to a major point in the story of Britain. The Anglo-Saxon kingdoms never really had a chance of turning the great heathen army back. And now, it looks like they're here to stay. There's no denying it anymore. But that's as much of a problem to solve for the Danes as it is for the Anglo-Saxons. What happens when you're no longer invaders, but rulers? History as we know it, it's littered with empires that fall right at around this point, when they shift their activity from conquering to the normal, boring business of governance. And this will be a problem for the Danes going forward. And it's also a problem for one of the last independent Anglo-Saxon kings. Now, if you've heard about Alfred the Great before listening to this podcast, it's likely that you heard two stories. You heard the story of Alfred being chastised by a peasant woman who didn't realize he was king because he allowed some cakes to burn in the oven while he was pondering what to do to retake his kingdom. You know, the story of Alfred and the cakes. There's a good chance that you also heard a second story about how Alfred the Great saved England from the Vikings. Virtually every Englishman who's heard about Alfred has heard these two stories. And they're both myths. They do relate to actual events, but the real story behind these legends is much more interesting than the fairy tales that were constructed later on. And where we're at right now is where Alfred starts to become Alfred the Great. And he starts down this path thanks to a man that we've already met in our story. A man who most of you probably didn't notice when he was first mentioned. It was a Vikinger named Guthrum. Now, Guthrum was one of the three Viking kings who came to support Halfdan's great army. And upon arrival, he largely faded into the background because Halfdan casts a pretty large shadow. But Guthrum is about to get out from underneath that shadow. And when he does, he's going to have a chance to stretch his legs. And in doing so, he will come very close to conquering Wessex. All that stood between Guthrum and total victory was Alfred and his supporters. That story about the cakes? That's the only thing that most people know about Alfred's actual guerrilla war campaign. 
And the story of Alfred becoming the man who saved England from the Vikings? That's the Victorian spin of how Alfred fought that guerrilla war and then ended up winning a great battle against Guthrum at Eddington. Now the whole story is a lot bigger and more interesting than what I just hinted at. And we're going to do it justice in the BHP style. But you really need to know that this is Alfred's defining struggle. At the center of his story is the Viking king Guthrum. And it's all taking place after the Danes have largely won a permanent foothold in Britain. Of course, not everything is battles between kings. Time marches on, even in war. People need to feed themselves. They build businesses and homesteads and empires. Yeah, they build empires. And here's the other story of what's happening at the same time that I'm sure you've never heard about. It's a story of Danish Imperium. Older historians, like Sir Frank Stenton, tended to look at the actions of Halfdan and others as being motivated purely by plunder. It fit within the Victorian model of the Scandinavians being mindless, brutal Vikings who hated Christianity and really loved shiny things. But modern scholarship has finally started asking real questions of the evidence we have. And now, they think they might know why Halfdan and others were doing what they were doing in Britain. Specifically, they think they might have been looking to build an empire that stretched across the Irish Sea. If the Danes could connect their holdings in Britain with their holdings in Ireland, and specifically with the slave trading town of Dublin, they could build an economic juggernaut. And Halfdan and his crew were not the first people to have this idea. It's something we've already seen attempted. For example, do you remember when Ivor the Boneless tried to hold both East Anglia and Dublin? So, as Guthrum and Alfred are struggling over the south, we're also going to see Halfdan pursue his own goals. And it's a story that used to confuse people, but now we think we know what he's up to. Something else at play as the Vikings are settling in Britain for the long haul is that there's a new king in Mercia by the name of Cholwulf II. And Cholwulf's story is strange, and here's why I want to share it with you. We're given two stories about this man, and they're diametrically opposed. One says that he's the traitorous lapdog to the Danes, who was placed in power by Halfdan after Halfdan deposed Alfred's brother-in-law from his position. And this version of Cholwulf stands accused of allowing Danish forces to move through and occupy his lands at will. And that meant that the Danes now had unrestricted access to the Thames, and thus placed large sections of Greater Wessex in danger. The Chronicle in particular tends to argue this position, and it even describes Cholwulf as, quote, a foolish king's thane, end quote, and lays the Viking occupation of the Midlands largely on his shoulders. The other story appears in charters and other records, and it shows Cholwulf II acting independently and, more importantly, we see Alfred and Cholwulf cooperating in matters of rule. At points, they even share control of royal mints and coordinate their efforts in restoring their debased currencies. And that's no minor thing. Both politics and economics were at stake there, and yet they found a way to work together. Furthermore, on several occasions, Alfred even appears to claim that he's Cholwulf's overlord. And perhaps he was. So who Cholwulf II was depends on what you're reading. The truth is that much of what we read about Cholwulf II comes from West Saxon accounts, and they're a bit all over the place. 
And that leaves us feeling a bit unsure of how exactly Alfred felt about Cho'Wolf, and therefore how he felt about Mercia. And if you're wondering why Alfred might have cause to disparage Cho'Wolf after the fact, because the Chronicle was written quite a while after the fact, well, keep in mind that Cho'Wolf's predecessor was Alfred's brother-in-law, and Cho'Wolf's successor would end up being Alfred's son-in-law. So Cho'Wolf was the only Mercian ruler in a generation to not have a family connection to Alfred. And that did put him in an awkward position when it came to the historical record, which was written by Alfred's allies. But this confusion regarding the reality of Cho'Wolf II is really important because it provides a backdrop to the political and interpersonal side of this titanic shift in Anglo-Saxon power. Because what we're seeing here is the end of the mighty kingdom of Mercia. And granted, we only see it in the periphery. But the kingdom that once dominated the island was cracking. And the drama in that event centers around one simple question. How much of a role did the House of Wessex play in the destruction of Mercia? If you listen to Wessex, they would have you believe that Cholwulf did everything but convert to worshipping Thor and that it was he who contributed to the doom of the kingdom. But in the meantime, we get these indications that Alfred was incorporating portions of Mercia, even London, into his kingdom, and that he was even claiming overlordship over Mercia, even over King Cholwulf II. So what was really going on here? And to what extent was Cholwulf II owing fealty to Halfdan, and to what extent was he owing it to Alfred? I mean, how much control did the Danes really have over Mercia? And therefore, how much real access did they have to Mercian lands, including the Thames? And beyond that, did the Danes kill Mercia? Or did Alfred? So this is where we're going as the story turns from one of Danish invasion to one of Danish settlement and potentially a Viking empire. But let's get back to 874. Things are looking a bit like the end times for the Anglo-Saxons. Burgred is gone, Cholwulf II is ruling Mercia, though, like I pointed out, we aren't sure how independent he was. East Anglia is under Danish control, Deira is being directly ruled by King Halfdan, and Bernicia has broken away and is being ruled by some random dude named Rick Siga. And then we have Alfred ruling over Wessex, the last surviving son of Athelwulf. And it had only been a few years since he'd engaged in a bitter and bloody war against Halfdan and his great heathen army. So the last thing he'd want to do at this point is get into another fight, especially since his ability to wage war would depend entirely on the willingness of his nobles to pony up soldiers. So his army, what was left of it, was probably war-weary to the extreme. But at the same time, he'd witnessed the Danes repeatedly disregarding their own treaties with other kingdoms. So he must have been expecting the Danes to return to his lands eventually. Basically, whether or not he wanted it, he had to have known that war would return to his lands. It was simply a matter of time. But there was a small stroke of luck for Alfred. As 874 came to a close, the great heathen army was being torn in two directions. On the one hand, King Halfdan wanted to return north. Jorvik was his, and when he'd been gone for a while last time, it sparked up into a rebellion. So showing his face every now and then probably would be in his interest. 
He probably also wanted to ensure that he had the submission of the surrounding lands. I mean, just because he had Jorvik didn't mean that he had all of the lower kingdom of Deira under control. And that meant he'd need to start the process of settling his new kingdom. There was also the matter of the northern kingdoms and what profits he might be able to find up there. The prospects were probably pretty good, or at least better than they were in the south. After all, he'd subdued Mercia, and he'd received numerous Danegelds in the south. But at a certain point, you're going to start running into diminishing returns. Every time he forced these southerners to loot their lands to pay him, he was driving them ever closer to bankruptcy. At some point, there just wouldn't be much left to take. And besides, the only real southern Anglo-Saxon target left was Wessex, and he made a promise to Alfred to leave him alone. And unlike the Mercians, the West Saxons put up a hell of a fight, so he might not have wanted to poke that bear. Wessex was staying placidly behind their borders, so why would he want to mess with that? Besides, these lands were probably starting to feel cursed. In addition to his horrifically bad luck and a streak of near defeats, his great army had also just suffered through a f***ing plague. This place sucked. Why not go north instead? I mean, he hadn't raided the lands up there yet. And if he could stretch his northern kingdom eastward and dominate the Strathclyde Britons, he would be one step closer to uniting his kingdom with the territories of Ireland. And then he'd have quick access to the slave markets of Dublin. All in all, the incentives for Halfdan pointed northwards. But while Halfdan might have had a very good reason to want to go north and definitely not go back to Wessex, since it was a bit of a debacle when he went there last time, his allied kings, Guthrum, Oscatel, and Anwind, weren't part of any of that, and they might have actually felt like they'd fare better than this so-called son of Ragnar. And besides, that Dane guild that Alfred paid was with Halfdan. It wasn't with Guthrum. He hadn't made any promises of peace or friendship with the West Saxons. So what would stop him? Riches awaited, and they were just across the border. And while Halfdan already had lands of his own, and while he was probably intending to share them with his most loyal and long-standing supporters, Guthrum and his compatriots were all recent additions to the Great Army. So what chances do you think they'd have at getting a kingly share of Halfdan's land? Not good, right? If they wanted lands, they would probably need to take them in a war of their own, and the West Saxons were weakened from their fight with Halfdan. So maybe Guthrum thought he could finish the job. Whatever the case, Guthrum and his two allies, as well as their forces, weren't quite ready to leave the south yet. They just got here. So, as the days of 874 came to an end, the once great army split. The Northmen who had fought shoulder to shoulder and seized so much plunder were now marching in opposite directions. And what might have worried any Anglo-Saxon scouts who were watching the movement of this army was the fact that while the grizzled and bloodied army of Halfdan were making their way north, the fresh recruits that had joined them recently weren't. Now sure, they might not have as much experience as Halfdan's men. After all, Halfdan's men had endured at least nine years of campaigning by this point. But these fresh recruits also likely had all their limbs, and they looked eager for a chance to prove themselves. So that's not good. Now, older historians will describe this as a breakup of the great army, 
but I think that's a bit misleading. The reality is that the bulk of the army was remaining as a single cohesive force and heading north under the command of Halfdan. It was just the remainder, mostly the new recruits under the command of Guthrum, Oskatel, and Anwend, who were going south. So they weren't breaking up. There was just a small splinter faction. And frankly, this splinter faction wasn't going too far south. I mean, they still needed to make their plans. So they marched upon Cambridge and wintered there, presumably because they couldn't get into Oxford. Now, Guthrum's choice of Cambridge is somewhat of a mystery. Some older historians tended to believe that Guthrum was provoking Alfred by occupying Cambridge, and they went so far as to argue that the West Saxons might have been planning on attacking them in response. And that strikes me as wishful thinking by scholars who are looking to gild Alfred's anti-Viking reputation. And in fact, I haven't found any modern scholars who suggest that Cambridge was some sort of thumb in the eye to Alfred. These Vikings were marching just a little bit to the southeast and occupying a border town between Mercia and Danish-controlled East Anglia. So who cares? I mean, if they plonked down on the West Saxon border, that would be one thing. But sitting on the East Anglian border? What difference would that really make to Alfred? I just don't see it. But even if Alfred was a bit bummed that Guthrum hadn't gone north with Halfdan, I really don't think that would have been enough to lead him to plot an invasion into East Anglian lands and initiate another war, especially on the heels of a bruising fight that left him having to buy off Halfdan. I just don't see it, and I'm not surprised that modern scholars generally don't either. But the more interesting part of the occupation of Cambridge is what it might tell us about the forces of Guthrum and his standing with the Scandinavian forces in Britain. First, it might give us an indication of the size of Guthrum's forces. D.P. Kirby claims that the force that marched south under the command of Guthrum was a relatively minor military unit. Now that's surprising because, as we already know, Guthrum's army nearly brings an end to the House of Wessex. So what happened there? Well, Kirby theorizes that further recruitment by Guthrum's army might have been occurring during this early period and that, as they waited in Cambridge, they were actively recruiting. And there are indications that this was the case. We know that he was seeking support later on, probably from Ireland, and given how common it was for Viking bands to join successful armies during this era, I find it entirely plausible that Guthrum and his compatriots were planning on picking up additional recruits as they engaged in their campaign, just as Halfdan and others had done. Furthermore, the West Saxons tell us of Viking ships active along the coast of Britain. And is it so hard to believe that some of those ships would be coming to join Guthrum's army? I think they probably were. So while Kirby suggests that the army that initially moved into Cambridge was a fraction of the Great Army, he and other scholars like Abel's contend that it was growing through recruitment. The second thing that Guthrum's occupation of Cambridge suggests is their stature and position in British Scandinavian life. We've already seen Guthrum and his two companions addressed as kings. And while that is a term that's rather loosely applied when it comes to the Northmen, especially when they're in Britain, based upon their actions, it does leave you wondering what sort of authority he had. We don't know much about what was going on in East Anglia during this period. But the fact that he was able to winter in Cambridge makes you wonder if he and his companions held sway in that region. Or were the local authorities simply too weak to resist them 
and is this an indication that Guthrum was extending his authority into East Anglia? Avels argues that by selecting Cambridge, Guthrum was consolidating his power over both East Anglia and Mercia, and I do find that to be highly persuasive. These armies were like a wrecking ball upon the ancient political hierarchies, and we've seen absolutely no evidence that they were only used against non-Scandinavians. In fact, this idea of Danes and Scandinavians and Vikings being a unified group is largely a construction that was placed upon these people after the fact. The people that we blithely categorize as universally Danes don't appear to have seen themselves as all members of one group with the same goals and affiliations. They fought each other all the time, sometimes even as mercenaries. So while I seriously doubt that Alfred was provoked by Guthrum taking Cambridge, I do wonder if the ruling class of East Anglia were provoked. Guthrum very well might have been trying to keep his thumb on Cholwulf II of Mercia while also consolidating power over East Anglia, like Abel says. And the previous ruling order of East Anglia, who were likely Danes, were probably not all that pleased. But as for what Alfred thought of this... I doubt he was all that angry about it, despite how well that would fit into his legend. So what was Alfred doing? Well, it looks like he was working to bolster his position within Wessex. Don't forget that by losing the war against Halfdan after fighting so many bloody and costly battles would have likely weakened his position politically. And so it's not surprising that we see evidence in the record that Alfred was spending his time making grants of land and gifts to various nobles in his kingdom, especially in Kent. A lot of this took place in Kent. Now, those older historians want us to imagine him reforming the army and out there preparing for war. But the record paints a very different picture, and there's no indication that he was reforming the Ferd during this period. If he was preparing for war... He was doing so politically. He was shoring up his network of support. And that makes sense. His battle plans wouldn't do him any good if his eldermen didn't come when he called. He had to fix his court first before he focused on any battle tactics. It also appears that he might have been exerting political pressure across his northern border, while also looking for common ground with the new King Cholwulf II of Mercia. And it also looks like he was trying to find some opportunities to acquire a degree of control over the wealthy southern trading town of London. And that was a smart move, because access to that wealth would help him bolster his standing. And it would also enable him to better fund public works projects. If he wanted a network of defensible fortified towns throughout his kingdom, he needed to find a way to pay for it. And if he wanted his subjects to help him construct and man those defenses he would need the support of his nobles. And since a king was a giver of rings, that meant that Alfred was probably spending a large portion of this period out there doing his job, creating bonds of loyalty and fealty between himself and the members of his nobility, who were probably looking a bit capricious right now. So, while it's not as exciting as imagining him living through some sort of action montage of a Middle Ages boot camp, Alfred was out there doing the hard, boring, thankless, and absolutely necessary work of ensuring that Wessex would be politically and economically ready for war. And a politics of a different kind was also happening in Cambridge. Upon their arrival in Cambridge, Guthrum's army had three kings, himself, Oscatel, and Andwind. However, 
that would be the last time we would hear of Andwend and Oscatel. Whatever happened within Cambridge, whether there was any kind of fight, whether there was a power play, a coup, or simply a parting of ways, the fact remains that as Guthrum wintered in Cambridge, he was also consolidating power within his own army. And by the year's end, this army would be his, and his alone. Meanwhile, far to the north, the army of Halfdan was marching. As the days grew shorter and the nights grew longer, they made their way into the ancient kingdom of Deira, now known as Jorvik. But instead of entering their capital and disbanding, they kept marching. If Halfdan wanted to build upon his successes in the south, he would need to tame the north first. So they continued their trek until they reached the waters of the Tyne, the border that separated King Halfdan's kingdom from that of the rebel king Rixiga of Bernicia. And there, along the river, they made camp and began their preparations. War was coming. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. You can find us at British Podcast. And you can find links to all our other communities, as well as my summary of Z's PhD, at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. it's time for another pub quiz you know the drill question one what was the swinborg agreement question two when half dan was stuck in reading harried by alfred's guerrilla strikes he was joined by a great summer fleet the fleet was led by three kings they were named anwen oscatel and who who was the third king Question 3. Alfred lost the war with Halfdan. His army was defeated on the field of battle, and he had to pay a Danegeld to the great heathen army to get them to leave his lands. For the Victorians, what was the most shameful part of this whole endeavor? And as a bonus point, what was probably the most shameful part for most of the West Saxons? Question 4. After Halfdan won his West Saxon campaign, where did he go immediately afterwards, and what did he do? Question 5. Northumbria rebelled against Halfdan's puppet king, Egbert, and a new king was put in power. What was that king's name? Question 6. Despite paying several Danegelds to Halfdan in the past in exchange for peace, the great heathen army decided to occupy the Mercian town of Torxi anyway. And what did King Burgred do in response? Question 7. After Torxi, Halfdan and his army occupied Repton. 
the site of a number of royal cults and the resting place for the Whig dynasty. And in response to this seizure, what did Burgred do? Question eight, true or false? The great heathen army was an all male affair from start to finish. Question nine, after Halfdan put down the rebellion and reclaimed Northumbria, where did he go and what did he do? Question 10. Based upon his actions in Northern Britain, and based upon the recent death of his brother, what does it appear that Halfdan was attempting to do in Britain and elsewhere? Okay, let's see how you did. Question 1. What was the Swinborg Agreement? It was the succession agreement between Athelred and Alfred that allowed Alfred to pass over his nephews and take the crown. Question two. When Halfdan was stuck in Reading, harried by Alfred's guerrilla strikes, he was joined by a great summer fleet. The fleet was led by three kings. They were named Anwen, Oscatel, and who? Who was the third king? It was Guthrum. Question three. Alfred lost the war with Halfdan. His army was defeated on the field of battle, and he had to pay a Danegeld to the great heathen army to get them to leave his lands. For the Victorians, what was the most shameful part of this whole endeavor? And as a bonus point, what was probably the most shameful part for most of the West Saxons? For the Victorians, it was the Danegeld. But for the West Saxons, it was probably losing the battles at least most likely. Question four. After Halfdan won his West Saxon campaign, where did he go immediately afterwards? And what did he do? He went to London and he occupied the city until the Mercians paid him off. Question five. Northumbria rebelled against Halfdan's puppet king, Egbert, and a new king was put in power. What was that king's name? King Rixiga. Question six. Despite paying several Danegelds to Halfdan in the past in exchange for peace, the great heathen army decided to occupy the Mercian town of Torxi anyway. And what did King Burgred do in response? He paid another Danegeld. Question seven. After Torxi, Halfdan and his army occupied Repton the site of a number of royal cults and the resting place for the Whig dynasty. And in response to this seizure, what did Burgred do? He abandoned the throne, he left Britain, and then he went off to Rome. Question eight, true or false? The great heathen army was an all male affair from start to finish. False. We found female bodies at Repton that suggest otherwise, and some of them appear to have been Scandinavian. Question nine. After Halfdan put down the rebellion and reclaimed Northumbria, where did he go and what did he do? He went into Strathclyde and Pickland, and he subdued them as well. Question 10. Based upon his actions in Northern Britain and based upon the recent death of his brother, what does it appear that Halfdan was attempting to do in Britain and elsewhere? It looks like he was trying to retake his brother's land and establish an empire that would stretch across the island and possibly into Ireland as well. 
All right. I hope you did well, and I'll see you on the next one.